What's going on, everyone? Welcome to the program. It is episode 308 of Not Your Average Boston Sports Podcast. I am your host, Garrett Hayden. As always, you can listen to the program on Apple Podcasts and on Spotify. And you can follow our social pages on Facebook and Twitter for the uh, latest updates. Uh, Good to be back with you folks this week on this uh, February 26th, Monday. Believe it or not, we're almost done with the month of March, but... uh, Great to be back with uh, with you folks this week. I want to uh, say thank you to Chris Burns for uh, coming on Guest Friday last week. Great conversation with him talking about the uh, PLL Championship Series that uh, wrapped up uh, last Monday. So it was good to chat with him. If you have not uh, listened to it, you can go check that out. I do have a new Guest Friday for you folks later this week. It's actually going to be most likely a weekend edition doing a... Uh, trade deadline preview for the Bruins with a uh, returning guest who's been by plenty of times to talk Bruins. So uh, we'll chat about kind of the Bruins' needs and what they may try to do um, at the trade deadline. I think that it's getting a little bit more interesting. I think with some of the recent play, we'll get into the Bruins uh, later in the program, but I think we're going to start uh, with the Red Sox. And uh, spring training is, is underway. Red Sox have uh, played a couple of games actually uh, lost their first um, official game to the Orioles 4-3 on Saturday, but then won a couple of uh, split split squad games yesterday uh, where they kind of split up the uh, the training camp roster, uh, spring training roster. Uh, so the Red Sox won both games yesterday um, against Atlanta and Minnesota. You know, obviously, I think it will just say as a disclaimer, it is spring training, and I think really it's not about wins and losses. It's kind of paying attention to um, individual player performance. And, you know, I think as it kind of is with, I think, any type, any type of uh, like training camp or preseason, if you think about, you know, the NFL training camp and preseason, you kind of pay attention to um, individual guys. So I think that's kind of, I think, where the focus is going to be uh, today, just looking at some of the games that have been played, you know, I think yesterday, taking a look at the game against Atlanta, um, in which the Red Sox won 5-4, to four, um, you had a really good, I think, solid outing for Brian Bayo, who pitched two innings, um, did not allow a run, and I think obviously, you know, it's hard to take too much stock, I think, from individual performances, I mean, I think you want to pay attention to how certain guys are doing, I think it's just... You want to make sure that things are kind of going according to plan. And I think they did yesterday uh, for Bayo. Pitched two innings, um, had three strikeouts, gave up a walk. Um, kind of a tough outing for uh, Joe Jakes, who is a pitcher that they brought up last season. Uh, pitched a little bit, gave up three runs in an inning. So not the best first outing for him. But um, I think for the pitching staff, it's really all about getting off to a good start and being able to kind of, you know, build off your starts and continuing to do that. So, you know, first start for Bayo, hopefully that we see him pitch a couple of more times. Um, I think that in my opinion, he's likely the opening day starter. Um, Just kind of what it feels like at the moment. You know, I think that Lucas Giolito could certainly uh, be someone that starts, but I think that Bayo is kind of the guy that I think should lead the rotation um, I think looking at 
the player performance, uh, you know, field guys. Uh, Sedan Rafaela, I think, pretty decent day at the plate, you know, one for two, a couple of walks. You know, I think the biggest thing for him is to be as consistent as he can um, in the batter's box and being a quality guy that can maybe be somewhat of a table setter. You know, I think it's a pretty important spring training for him uh, because I think he has a tremendous opportunity to make the team. You know, I think that if he, you know, shows up and has a really good spring, there's a very good chance he could be your starting center fielder um, on day one. You know, I think defensive ability, he's already there. I think that the Red Sox have not had this type of defensive center fielder uh, since Jackie Bradley. So I think he's a guy that I think should make the the opening day roster. Um, I think it's just kind of being consistent at the plate every day. And I think that that's kind of the biggest thing for him. Um, So he went one for two in this game. Connor Wong, the other kind of, or the couple regulars were in this game. Uh, Rafaela Dahlbeck and uh, Connor Wong. So Connor Wong had two hits, went two for three at a couple RBIs. You know, I think he's probably going to be the guy that gets most of the starts at catcher. Um, you know, I think that really solid defensive catcher. I think that kind of like Rafaela, he's really good defensive player, but I think still has areas to improve offensively. But, you know, good start for him, two for three. Um, looking at the other game, Red Sox against the Twins, an 8-6 to six win. Giolito did start this game. Two innings, a walk and a strikeout. Some other guys. Uh, Chris Murphy pitched two innings, three hits, two strikeouts. Greg Weissert, uh, who they acquired in the Verdugo trade, in the inning, a hit and a hit and a walk and two strikeouts. So I think you could see all three of those guys with the Red Sox at some point this season. So, you know, like I said with Bayo, you know, I think Giolito, it's important for him to get off to a good start. Um, I think just thinking about all the different things that he went through last year, pitching for three different teams, and it kind of just wasn't a good season. I think for him to get off to a good start was important. And it's like, then again, and again, it's spring training. You're not really going to read into too much, but I think as long as someone like Giolito doesn't have a bad start, that's really all you're looking for. And it's like, may have a couple of starts that aren't as good in spring training, but I think it's important to kind of hit the ground running. So I think it was good, solid performance for him. And then most of the Red Sox regulars played in this game. Devers, Story, uh, Yoshida, Tyler O'Neill, Reese McGuire. So hits for Devers and Story. Story with a double. Devers with a three-run home run. So it was good to see him. Hitting a long ball, Rob Red, hitting a long ball, Rob Ref Snyder was one for two, with a couple of RBIs, and uh, Blaze Jordan, one of the Red Sox prospects, was two for three with an RBI, and two runs scored. So, I think you're obviously paying attention to the everyday guys, you know, the guys that likely are going to be regulars on this roster. But I also think. Spring training is a great time, a great time that you can pay attention to 
some of the prospects and some of the you know fringe roster players that likely will end up in Worcester. Um, I think it's great to see the opportunities that guys like Kyle Teal and Blaze Jordan, as I mentioned, Roman Anthony, guys that I think are kind of building blocks for your future, really important for them to get into games too. So I think it's spring training is just, I think, a combination of things. You want to get your guys ready. Um, you know, I think pitching-wise, probably the most important um, just to get guys kind of in a routine and a rhythm. And then once the regular season starts, they're kind of ready to go. Uh, but I also think it's tremendous opportunity for the prospects, especially the guys that are in the major league camp, to really show what they can do. So as I, you know, talked with Evan Greasing a couple of weeks ago about kind of the overall feeling of the team, I still think that it's worthwhile to pay attention to the group in spring training because I think while there's a lot of I think negativity around the team, and it's not exactly unwarranted, I think, based on the what has or hasn't been done with players being brought in for free agency. I still think that it's worthwhile to pay attention to this team and pay attention to the guys that, you know, will be part of this roster this year. And as I said, as I've said, you know, I think plenty of times this offseason, baseball's a very strange sport and you know oftentimes the things that you think are going to go a certain way don't or the things that you don't think will go a certain way go a certain way and I think it's hard to really kind of point out that okay this is a Red Sox team that's not going to be good you know I think that we all have our kind of predictions about what this team will be you know I think for me personally if I think about this team and I think about, you know, the rest of the American League East, you know, I think it's, it's going to, they're going to be hard pressed to win 80 games. You know, I think that they could win somewhere between 70 and 80, but who knows, you know, I think crazy things can happen. You can get, you know, a pitching staff that can start pitching regularly in the sixth and seventh innings, you know, does the power come from kind of unexpected places. Um, I think that those are kind of some things to watch. You know, if this team does kind of go on a roll, I think especially to start the year, it's not going to be easy exactly because the Red Sox, you know, start the season with 10 games on the road. Um, but I think there is an opportunity for this team to surprise some people and, you know, be a team that kind of comes out of nowhere. So today the Red Sox will play against Philadelphia at JetBlue Park, and then the rest of the week games against St. Louis, Washington, Detroit, Minnesota, Tampa Bay, Washington, and Toronto. So Washington twice. A couple of division opponents, a couple of National League teams. Um, and just to kind of give you an idea for the start of the season. Red Sox start out west in Seattle and then travel to Oakland and Los Angeles to play the Angels. And then the home opener is not until April 9th. So the Red Sox are starting the season March 28th and then are on the road until April 9th. So 
I think that's probably going to do it for the Red Sox. We'll um, obviously keep you guys updated uh, throughout spring training and throughout, you know, updates for how different guys are doing because I think it's worthwhile to pay attention to. So I think we're going to move on. We're going to talk about the Bruins, and uh, it's definitely been a disappointing time to be a Bruins fan. And I think, you know, as I've said several times over the last couple of weeks, I'm not necessarily surprised that there's been a slide and there's been kind of a drop-off in performance. Um, I just think that it's a little concerning how there's kind of still this drop-off in play and you kind of don't really know what you're going to get game to game with this team. And, you know, I know that it's frustrating to lose games, you know, and obviously they've been all over the place with overtime losses and things like that. But, you know, they're getting points. And I think that you can at least point to getting points in some of these games. Now, Saturday's game, not a game that you should be excited about. You know, that should be a game that you're really disappointed in. Uh, blowing a two-goal lead in the third period, and I think things like that obviously cannot happen, and unfortunately, things like that have been happening way too often this year, um, and I think it's something that I think at a certain point was kind of concerning, but you figure that, okay, throughout the rest of the year, they're going to figure things out, and they kind of haven't. Um, I think it's, you know, disappointing that it just seems like all too often in the third period, it's not being able to hold leads and the Bruins are struggling the same way they struggled in, you know, the tail after, or the same way they struggled the tail end of the first round series against Florida. And I think my biggest concern based on what I watched against Vancouver is I don't really know how it gets better. And I think that there can be an argument that, okay, Maybe you put certain guys in certain positions to either be on the ice or not be on the ice. And I think, sure, there are personnel decisions that could be made, but I just think I don't really know if that changes anything. And I think it's kind of just this team needs to figure it out and they need to be able to kind of find their own way because I think the things like this have been happening all season, whether or not they have certain guys on the ice, depending on, you know, who they have on the ice, depending on who's in goal. And I think just not being able to, you know, make the right plays to finish games. Um, and I think in particular, if you think about the Los Angeles game, um, on this, uh, the Los Angeles game, like a week and a half ago, um, then the Vancouver game, both games, you have a lead in the final minutes and you can't hold on. And I think it's all too familiar uh, with this team. And it kind of doesn't really matter who's in goal. It doesn't really matter who's on the ice. And I kind of don't really know what the answer is. And maybe there's an answer analytically. Maybe there's an answer for the way that the Bruins play defense in the final minutes. And maybe they need to be more aggressive and not be as conservative, but it's just, I think when you look at where they're at in late February with, you know, 23 games to go, I don't really know how you drastically 
change the way that you play defense. So it kind of goes back to just trying to get the, the saves that you can and getting clears and blocking shots and things like that. And, you know, you just kind of hope that they can just turn it around. But I think you, you look at this team and you look at what's been happening since the, the All-Star game is, you know, really only one game where you can point to and say, this was a really good win, a game that they played great the entire night, and that was the Vancouver game, the second game back from the All-Star break. And I think even those extra, those past regulation wins um, against Dallas and Edmonton, I think as great as they were for team building, I think you look at those games, and they very easily could have lost both of those games. Um, you know, I think they have to kind of consider themselves a little bit lucky that they've been able to come away with uh, some of those wins. You know, the Edmonton game blowing a three-goal lead and then having to win in overtime. You know, the Dallas game that I think the Bruins deserve a lot of credit for that win, you know, coming back and then winning it in the shootout. But I think, I think then as good as I thought Swayman was in that shootout against Dallas, it kind of just all came falling out against Edmonton. And I know that they won, but Swayman gave up some goals that really were pretty uncharacteristic. And I think for this team to kind of get back on track, it kind of starts with the goaltending. And I think it's not been nearly as good as it need, as it's needed to be over the last five games. And the tough thing is, you know, the Bruins are dealing with some injuries. You know, I think that Hampus Lindholm is going to be out for a little period of time or for a decent period of time. And so they really have to kind of find their way. And they really have to, I think, rely on the depth that they have, the little depth that they have. And I think it involves McAvoy having to play, you know, close to 30 minutes. It kind of involves someone like Lower Eye kind of being, you know, thrust into it and having to play nearly 25 minutes. And I think you could say that maybe that is really good for his development, but I think, I don't know if the Bruins really wanted him to play, really want him to be playing high leverage minutes at the end of February, you know, approaching the trade deadline, you know, this late in the season. Um, so I think it kind of just a lot falls in the defense and guys just needing to get it together. You know, I think that they're, Bruins have really done a lot to try to get Derek Forbert playing the way that he should and kind of getting him right, I guess. But I think it's kind of clear that I think they're, I don't want to say running out of time, but I just think that, you know, he came back after the new year and it's like they're still trying to work to get him right. And I think that at his best, he is a really helpful defenseman because he's a big body. He can block shots. And I think can be a valuable player in the playoffs but when he's not playing his best you know it's like there kind of really isn't much that he does out there and so it's kind of like the Bruins need to be able to get him to play at his best and they need to get the most out of some of their other guys and I think someone like Parker Watherspoon has played I think admirably well recently but it's just I think with Lindholm going down, you're really testing your left shot depth because 
outside of you know outside of Lindholm, Lindholm you have Grizzly forward Watherspoon and then you have Lowry and it's just like I don't know if that group really is something that you can rely upon for long stretches of time and I think certainly it can't be something that you rely on and rely upon in the playoffs so I think that it's kind of they have to batten down the hatches defensively because I think if the goaltending is not necessarily where it needs to be, then the defense has to do a better job at, you know, denying those high danger chances. And I think since the All-Star break, you've seen the team kind of go a little bit cold in terms of goal scoring. And I think in terms of some of their top guys, you know, Pasternak even, I think, over the last 10 games only has six points or whatever. And I think The coaching staff is trying to do the best do the best that they can to find line combinations that work. And I think it's kind of just the style of Jim Montgomery that you kind of just try different things until you find something that works. But perhaps maybe there's too much line juggling and there needs to be kind of set in stone lines that you stick to for two or three games. And I understand that it's difficult because I think certain guys at times this year haven't brought it game to game or go through, you know, seven, eight, nine games without points, you know, eight, nine games with two or three points. And it's just, you need more consistency. You need more consistency from someone like Jake DeBrusk. And I think he's kind of a pretty polarizing player at the moment. I think, you know, given the Bruins salary cap, situation that they're really up against it. I think that there's a lot of conversation about moving him and seeing if you can improve at that position. But, you know, as I said a couple weeks ago, I think that DeBrusque is a guy that I think he, this is just who he is and he's a streaky player and you kind of just have to deal with it. And I think if you're thinking about a guy that you could trade him for, you know, it's it's not necessarily going to be a player that's going to be much better. You know, I think that that's kind of where people think, oh, you know, you could swap him for another forward. And I just think, like, you could do that, but who are you going to get that's really going to be better? And if you trade him for a defenseman, you know, what other forward in your organization are you calling up to be ready to be a top six forward? Like, Fabian Lysel has, I think, played really well in Providence this year, but is he really ready to be a top six forward. I don't know if he is. And so there's kind of huge, a huge risk involved in trading DeBrusque. And I understand that maybe the price might be too high, but I just think you're kind of not in a better situation if you move him for another forward. I think you're just kind of going to be in the same situation. So, you know, I think that he stays put. I don't think he gets traded. I honestly... You know, and obviously talk about this on the trade deadline preview, but I just don't think that they're really in a position that they're going to be doing anything major. Um, and I think that there needs to be an expectation that they're not going to necessarily do anything major. So last game of the road trip uh, for the Bruins tonight in Seattle, 10 o'clock start, and then they're back at home against... 
Vegas on Thursday, old friend Bruce Cassidy and Vegas Golden Knights coming by the Garden on Thursday, and then the Bruins are, believe it or not, right back out on the road for a two-game trip to Long Island to play the Islanders, and then Toronto to play the Leafs. Um, so I think it's going to be some tough games for the Bruins coming up. Uh, Seattle's not, a, not an easy place to play. You know, Vegas is tough, and then got a tough road trip, and then you got some games against um, Edmonton and then Toronto. You got two games against Toronto in the span of three days. So that will be very interesting. Um, and I know in this program we try to be positive and try not to focus on the negatives. I think it's hard to focus on the positives for the Bruins right now. But uh, one of the things that I think really was cool this week or kind of things that I've noticed over the last couple of weeks is the Bruins getting some guys from Providence involved. And, you know, Anthony Richard, I think Anthony Richard for the eight games he's played has looked pretty good. I really like his speed. And, you know, I think it's neat that the Bruins are giving him a look. And then someone like Justin Brazo, um, who's been really good in the three games he's played, you know, signing him to the two-way deal he's been playing in Providence the last couple of years, but I really liked his size. Um, I think that that's kind of brought a, a a different element to the Bruins' fourth line. I've really liked what I've seen from him. Um, and I also think Jesper Boquist recently has been playing really well, has been peppering in some points, and I just I kind of chuckled because watching the game against Vancouver where uh, Brazo had a nice setup for uh, Boquist, who scored. You think about that line that they rolled out Saturday with Richard, Brazo, and Boquist, and it just was crazy to me because I think if you think about what this team, you know, likely if you think about going into the season, what their fourth line was going to be, that it was going to be Lucic, Beecher, and... Um, maybe Lauko or whoever, and, you know, it's like the most unlikely trio played the fourth line against Vancouver, and I thought looked really, really good. So I think that that was, you know, a testament to what the Bruins have done this year, that they've been able to, you know, kind of find these guys and find these, you know, bargain bin kind of low-cost players that end up being pretty effective. And I think I've spent you know, hours and hours on this podcast this season talking about Van Riemsdyk and Heinen, two very, you know, cheap, low-cost veterans who have been really good. And I think slowly Boquist is becoming one of those guys, you know, eight points in, in 24 games, three goals, five assists. Richard's played eight games, has a goal and two, two assists, and then Brazo with two points, a goal and an assist at three games. So, Here's hoping that Brazo sticks here um, and the Bruins continue to get some good production from those guys. So I think that's probably going to do it for the Bruins finishing up the road trip tonight and then return home Thursday against Vegas. So we'll move on to the Celtics, who scored a pretty good win against uh, the Knicks over the weekend. Really pleased with that effort. You know, uh, feel like it's been a uh, 
theme for this team this season where they play a game like that and they're playing great and it looks like they're going to coast and then the game gets closer and you think, here we go, you know, here's the game where it's going to fall apart and Celtics didn't do that Saturday night. You know, they stayed with it and I think deserve a lot of credit for games like that where you know the Celtics shot the lights out in this game against the Knicks were unbelievable they go up 20 in I think it was the third quarter maybe late in the third quarter Knicks come back cut the lead to nine you know the, the garden's going crazy then the Celtics rip off eight in a row and take control back of the game and it seems like they've been doing that a lot this season where they get into a situation where the lead is dwindling and especially on the road, the crowd gets into it and then they make some big plays to be able to kind of get themselves right and get themselves back in control. And I think you saw that Thursday against Chicago as well, where, you know, the Celtics were up 15, 16 points in the first quarter and Chicago shoots 70% in the second quarter, takes the lead. And you're like, okay, this team played one good quarter in the first half, and now the Bulls are going to make it a game. And the Celtics took control of the game in the third quarter. And I was really pleased with that third quarter because I think, as we've talked about a lot this season, the Celtics have had their issues in the third quarter, outscored the Bulls 37-21 to Thursday night. And so I think that really allowed them to take control of the game. Um, and then against the Knicks, obviously they were great in the third quarter, 35 to 26, they outscored them. And so I think for me, I think going into the playoffs, that's one of the areas that I think I'm most interested to see how they perform because oftentimes this year, you've seen the team play a really, really good first half, everything's clicking. And then the third quarter, there are kind of some issues. The game gets closer in the fourth and the Celtics kind of have to hang on. But I think, especially coming back from the All-Star break, coming back from eight days off, the ability to you know, refocus in that second half, in that third quarter, and take control back. I think the, the ability to refocus in New York, you know, go on that 8 nothing run to take control of the game back, um, I think was huge. So... I think one of the great things with that Knicks game was Jalen Brown and just how good he was. I think that he's had some games recently where I think he has kind of had to, I don't want to say take a step back, um, but I think that he's done a good job of kind of recognizing when Porzingis and Tatum really have it going and he's not someone that's going to kind of, I don't want to say get in their way, but I think someone that recognizes, okay, you know, I'm a big time player. I'm an all NBA player, but, you know, kind of knows when to defer, but then kind of knows when to turn it on. And that's what we saw Saturday, 30 points, eight rebounds. He had a really good game. And I think there've been a lot of games this year where Tatum has been outstanding scoring the basketball. You know, you saw him put up 41 last week, 35 against Washington in a game um, a couple of weeks ago. But I think Saturday, you know, Tatum was 
the guy that was trying to get other other players involved with the six assists, I think being efficient with his shooting, but again, kind of letting Jalen Brown be the guy that took control because he was the guy that, you know, had the hot hand and scored 30 points. So I think it's been great to see the three of Tatum, Porzingis, and Brown working so well together kind of as that three-headed monster of scoring and it's kind of not really a your turn, my turn, but they kind of understand when, you know, maybe two of the guys have it going. Maybe one of the guys has it going and you kind of just feed the guy who's hot. And it's just kind of amazing to think about the three of them and how much Porzingis has really changed the what the Celtics are, are able to do offensively. And I think has made things easier for Jason, made things easier for Jalen, I think, to be another guy that's a scoring threat and someone else that opposing defenses have to be like, oh my God, how do we cover this guy? How do we cover this seven foot three guy that can basically shoot over anyone? So I think really pleased with Jalen's game Saturday and just the ability for their big guys to be able to recognize when someone else you know, has it going, they kind of recognize that, you know, Derek White was the guy Thursday night with 28 points. He had a great game. So I just, when this team is playing basketball like that, it really makes me believe that, you know, winning a championship really is very possible because they're able to, you know, each guy is kind of, is kind of able to play his role, but they're able to elevate you know, at times when they need it. So I think that's been great to see over the eight-game winning streak that it's kind of different guys, different guys being able to do different things each night. You know, and I think most nights, you know, Tatum or Porzingis is leading, a, is leading in terms of points, but then you have guys like, you know, Al, Horf- Al Horford who steps in, um, that Wednesday game against Atlanta, he had eight assists. You know, Drew Holiday, six assists. Thursday night against Chicago, 12 assists in that game against Brooklyn, the Tuesday night game last week um, in New York. So it kind of seems like with those top six guys, kind of a different guy every night that's doing something, doing something to be able to help the team, whether it's scoring, rebounding, assists, whatever it is. Um, so I think you kind of just want to keep the good times rolling for the Celtics. I'm very curious um, about some of these games this week against um, some key opponents at home. Uh, Celtics will play the Sixers tomorrow night at the Garden, and then we'll welcome Luka Doncic and the Mavericks Friday night, and then they will play Steph Curry and the Warriors uh, Sunday afternoon. So. I think for the Celtics to um, really try to get into a groove the next couple of games, kind of find their rhythm. And I think the great thing is with 25 games to go, the Celtics are pretty comfortably in for first place. I think it's something like seven and a half or eight games. So, you know, they really have an opportunity to use the next couple months to really kind of be do the best that they can to make sure that they're 
playing the right playing the right the the right brand of basketball uh, by the time the playoffs start. And I think that yes, it is difficult this time of year because you know you're kind of in the dog days of the season because the All Star breaks over. You know, it's really just a sprint to the end of the regular season. So, you know, I think you want the Celtics to be able to find another level, but I think at the same time, you don't want to have them be overworked. And so I think that's kind of something that'll be interested to see, especially when they go on this road trip after this uh, three-game homestand. They'll go to uh, Cleveland and then go to a couple places out west and then into the northwest with games against Portland and Utah. So, you know, I think that will be a time that hopefully the Celtics will, you know, utilize some of the guys that they brought in, you know, utilize some bench guys if, you know, Tatum or Brown or Porzingis or whoever, you know, takes a night off. I think that as you kind of get more into March, you probably might see more of that, but I think you don't want to have too much rest, you know, because I think, you don't want there to be rust. You don't want to be looking at the rest of the schedule thinking, okay, you know, we can sleepwalk to the end of the regular season. We have an eight-game lead. You know, it's not to say that the Celtics are going to get caught by another team that gets really, really hot, but I think it's just not getting too comfortable. And um, I trust that Joe Missoula and the coaching staff, you know, won't let the Celtics get too comfortable um, with kind of how the rest of the season goes, because you want them to be able to be playing their best basketball when it's time to, you know, tip off game one of the playoffs in middle of uh, middle of April. So I think for the Celtics, that's going to be it. You know, like I said, three-game homestand this week, and then they are out on the road for five, five in a row against some pretty, I'd say pretty decent teams, um, and then kind of just some hard places to play. Um, so I think, I think it's going to do it for the Celtics, 45 and 12. We'll take a look at the standings, um, in a little bit. Well, actually, well, you know what, now I think I've talked about Jason's, uh, MVP candidacy, I think just based on what we've seen from him this season, I don't really need to get into other people's opinions about how the MVP should be voted. It's just... Vote on the MVP for this season. Maybe I talked about this last week. Vote on the MVP for the season. I don't really care about what happened two years ago or what happened last year. It's like, give it to the player who's the best player this year. Really shouldn't be that complicated, but we'll see. So yeah, Tuesday night, tomorrow night, Celtics and the Sixers at the Garden. So we're going to move on. We're going to talk a little revolution uh, season began for the Revs last week with um, the CONCACAF Champions Cup, and they won their first leg against uh, Independiente, which is a club from Panama. From Panama, the Revolution won uh, the first leg one to nothing. Tomas Chancolet with uh, the the only goal in that game, so the Revs are up one nothing after the first leg. Second leg will be on Thursday night at Gillette Stadium. So Revs hopefully can advance on the aggregate if they're able to either hold the one nothing lead or um, extend the lead. So a second leg of the 
Champions Cup will take place Thursday, and then the Revs will stay home for their home opener on uh, Sunday against Toronto FC. Revs did have their first um, MLS game over the weekend, a 3-1 loss to DC United. Um, game that kind of got away from the Revs, unfortunately. Um, you know, 25 minutes in, Brioni gets a second yellow. He gets sent off, so Revs have to play 65 minutes with 10 men, which it's just like, don't really see how that's possible for them to get a win. The Revs, I think, did, you know, fight back Carlos Heel. Carlos Heel with a game-time goal in the 67th minute. A beautiful goal, just... I think sometimes watching Carlos Heel play, it's almost unbelievable that the Revolution have a guy that's just so unbelievably good and, like, probably one of the best players that they've ever had in the history of the franchise. And it's just, like, he does things like he did Saturday night. And it's, like, you're in disbelief that the Revs not only have a guy like that, but the goal that you saw Saturday night was, like, normal. You've seen him score goals like that, and it's, like, it's it's almost the norm with him. So I think it's just awesome to be able to see him play and be at its best. Unfortunately, the Revs were um, unable to grab the tie. Christian Benteke with all three of the D.C. United goals, one in the first half and then two in the second half. Um, I think just... The game just kind of got away from the revs, and I think when you're playing with 10 guys for 65 minutes, it's very hard to really think that you can come out of a game like that, especially on the road with at least a point. So, you know, hopefully the revs can play with 11 guys the whole game this time on Sunday when they play uh, Toronto FC in their home opener. But I think as uh, John Veneziano and I talked couple weeks ago before the season started, you know, talking about what their, you know, opening or what their, you know, roster might, might look like uh, some days. And I think John's thought about uh, Bayraktarovic being one of the guys that starts, you know, obviously was correct. Um, so he started the game, Carlos Hill and, and Shankalai, and then Vrioni kind of being that, that striker, unfortunately, Rev's didn't get to see him play very much, which is unfortunate. You know, I think that he's a guy that really has a lot to prove this season. Um, Buck and Polster in the middle, and then Jones, Romney, Mensa, and Lima as the defender. So Dave Romney, uh, Dewan Jones, I think most likely you'll see them for most games. And then Mensa and Lima, two of the new uh, defenders, I think be interesting to see how they do. And then Heinrich Rabas. The uh, new goaltender, you know, I think difficult to really have too much to say about his performance. Just, you know, given some of the goals that were scored that, you know, I think were kind of just, I, I really didn't see that there were a lot of breakdowns on the goals that happened. But I think, you know, it's the first MLS game. The Revolution have a lot of time to kind of get things right. But uh, here's hoping that they can figure it out. Um, have their full lineup for the home opener Sunday afternoon. So Revs, uh, before that, will obviously have their uh, CONCACAF Champions League second leg 
Thursday night at Gillette. That's an 8.15 start. Um, and then Sunday afternoon's game is at 2 o'clock, and then the Revs will be back to MLS competition next Saturday against, um, or the following Saturday, against Atlanta United. That's on the road. So I think first road game in MLS, and the Revs actually have uh, four of their next five um, at Gillette, which is really good. So hopefully the Revs can uh, build off of some home games to start the season and build off some uh, success there. So I think we're going to move on. Not really any Patriots stuff to get to yet. Uh, free agency kicks up in a couple of weeks. I think it's March 13th. Uh, news this weekend. We'll talk about that when we get to the NFL notes. But uh, T. Higgins, who I think was going to be scheduled to be a free agent, has been placed, um, or the Bengals have placed the franchise tag on him. So he will not be on the market, which kind of stinks. I was hoping the Patriots may have a shot to uh, sign him, but I think it'd be interesting to see the next couple of weeks. I think that franchise tag deadline is next week, so if players don't get tagged, they'll be free agents. Um, I think for the Patriots, possibility maybe you see Kyle Duggar getting placed with the tag. I'd be surprised. Um, I think the only other Patriot news is that they released... Uh, Lawrence Guy and Adrian Phillips last week. Really tough to see. You know, I really liked both of those guys in terms of their production and their leadership. I think Guy especially has been very solid for the Patriots in his time here. So that was tough to see. But I think with the team trying to, um, I don't want to say cut payroll because that's not the right term, but I think freeing up some cap space, I think, made a lot of sense, and I think it's two positions that the Patriots are pretty deep in. You know, I think, obviously, if they're able to keep Duggar, that safety position is still very deep. Um, the defensive line, I think, is also a very deep position, so it's not like losing both of those guys is critical. Um, you know, it did save a little bit of money, so I think that that's always good, but I think, you know, Patriots may miss a little bit of their leadership there. Um, I think that there's, I think, still leadership void that's, I think, still needs to be filled. And I think clearly with uh, Matt Slater's retirement last week as well, um, there's, you know, kind of a leadership void. And maybe not in a negative way, but I think that it's an opportunity for some of the younger leaders to, you know, really step up and really be comfortable with being kind of the next wave of, of this team. So, um, just one last note on Matt Slater. I think <laughs> words, I think, can't really describe what he meant to this team. You know, I think he's a huge part of the recent, you know, leadership culture. You know, I mentioned that, that, you know, was kind of the guy that pulled everyone together in terms of the special teams and was a really kind of special part of this team. And, you know, one of the things that I always appreciate about being Patriots fan is the emphasis on special teams, the emphasis on being solid in three in the three different areas of football. And I think being able to see guys like Slater, you know, come through and be so successful on special teams gives you a deeper appreciation for how the game is played. And I think that oftentimes 
we think that special teams is, you know, really boring and it doesn't really mean anything, but I think oftentimes it's the difference between winning and losing. And I think Slater's performance here has had a lot to do with why the team, special teams-wise, had been so good for so long. I know that there were some missteps the last couple of years and the unit's not nearly been as, it's not been nearly as good as it once was, but I think there's a lot of, there can be a lot of appreciation for um, someone like Matt Slater and someone that had the career that he did, a 10-time pro bowler, and I think should be a Hall of Famer. I think that um, as a guy that year after year was always a, a very solid performer, so uh, Patriots will definitely dearly miss him um, and his leadership, so it's tough to see him you know, decide to hang it up, but I think that is probably the best decision for him. And, you know, you wish him the best in retirement and, you know, hopefully we get to see him around uh, Gillette over the next couple of years, but yeah, happy trails, Matt. Thanks for, thanks for everything. So I think that's going to do it for the Patriots. We will move on and get to some notes, get to the NBA Five players, including Jimmy Butler, were suspended for their roles in the Heat and Pelicans fight the other night. Um, Trey Young will miss at least four weeks with a finger injury. And the Warriors giving Steve Kerr a two-year, $35 million extension to coach the Warriors for the next two years. So we'll take a look at some of the games tonight. Four games on the NBA schedule, 7 o'clock. On NBA TV, Toronto and Indiana. 7.30, Detroit and New York. The Knicks. And then at 8 o'clock, Brooklyn and Memphis. And then at 10 o'clock on NBA TV, the Heat and the Kings. So we'll take a look at the standing. Celtics currently sit seven and a half games in first place ahead of second place Cleveland. Milwaukee is in third place followed by the Knicks, the Sixers, and the Pacers in the top six spots in the East, and then in the wild, or not the wild card, the uh, play-in positions, the Heat are in seventh, Magic in eighth, Bulls in ninth, Hawks in tenth, and then the Nets are three and a half back of that final play-in spot. And over in the West... Things are a little bit more interesting with uh, Minnesota and Oklahoma City tied atop the Western Conference at 40 and 17. Denver, a game and a half back, is in third. The Clippers in fourth, and then followed by the Kings and the Suns in fifth and sixth. And then in the play in spots, the Pelicans, the Mavericks, the Lakers, and the Warriors with Utah three games back of that final spot. So I think we're going to move on and give you some NHL notes. Patrick Kane, in his return to Chicago, scored the overtime winner for Detroit last night. Chris Chelios' number was retired by the Blackhawks the other night. Nikita Kucherov with uh, four assists, or uh, excuse me, four points uh, for Tampa Bay last night is the first in the NHL to reach 100 points. Tyler Bertuzzi, former Bruin. Uh, turned 29 the other day and scored three goals for a birthday hat trick. 
and the Rangers win their 10th in a row on Saturday and then actually lost yesterday. So their winning streak is up. Take a look at some of the standings. Or take a look at the standings. Despite all the doom and gloom from certain people surrounding the Bruins, the Bruins still have the uh, tie for the most points in the East. So it's not nearly as bad, but <laughs> Bruins have a one-point lead over Florida in the Atlantic and then a seven-point lead over Toronto. In the Metro, the Rangers lead the division by seven over Carolina. They have 81 points tied with the Bruins for the most in the East. Carolina with 74, and then Philadelphia with 67. In the wild card spots, Detroit in the first spot with 70 points, and then Tampa Bay in second with 69 points. And the next closest team is the Devils, seven points back of the final wild card spot in the East. In the West, Vancouver leads the conference with 82 points after their win over the Bruins this weekend. So they lead the league and lead the Pacific with 82. Vegas in second with 71. And then Edmonton closing very fast with 68 points. Actually, a little bit of a slide for Edmonton and Vegas, but Edmonton in third place in the Central. Dallas with 78 points. Winnipeg second with 77. And the Colorado third with 75. And then you have the Kings and the Predators in the wildcard spots with St. Louis and Minnesota four points back of that final final playoff spot. So we'll take a look at some MLB notes. Cody Bellinger finally coming to terms on a free agent deal, returning to the Cubs for three years and $80 million. Shohei Otani to make his Dodgers debut as a DH on Tuesday. And we are going to, yeah, I think, take a look at some NFL notes. As I mentioned, T. Higgins, given the franchise tag by the Bengals, so he will play for the Bengals under that one-year um, one contract, which will pay him, I think, yeah, what is it, the average of the, average of the top five receivers. Um, so he'll be paid at a... Uh, Salary of $21.8 million. So he'll be with Cleveland or uh, Cincinnati for one more, one more year. The Dolphins uh, saving some cap space, releasing Xavier Howard and Emmanuel Ogba. Eric Bieniemy is leaving the NFL to become UCLA's offensive coordinator. And I think... That's probably gonna probably gonna do it for me this week. Uh, great to be back with you folks as always. Uh, Guest Friday probably will be out. I'm thinking some point on Saturday gonna do a kind of a weekend update, trade deadline preview for the Bruins. So looking forward to that later this week. Um, everyone have a great rest of your week, and we will uh, talk to you then. Talk to you over the weekend. All right.